is summer conference is I really think like it it's like a highlight for my year in all honesty um, so it's kind of expensive I realize that but uh, a um, there's time to try and save a little bit for it and B if it's just not going to happen come talk to me um, we have scholarships available full and partial um, don't let money be a reason why you don't go to Florida with us we really want you to come to Florida um, and it's it's a really great time. So I encourage you to think about it. Um, yeah, look at your finances. Talk to me, and we would love for you, for everyone here to, to go to a uh, summer conference with us. The registration will open March 1st, um, and uh, it goes fast. So, um, yeah, once that opens, we'll do more prep for it, but once that opens, uh, we'll need to get on it. So, okay, so if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, um, it, well, if you're, you're new, welcome to RUF. Again, this is kind of a weird, uh, not normal thing. We normally meet over at the Spiritual Center on campus. RUF is a community of Christians um, and non-Christians and people all the way in between trying to explore faith, spirituality, um, have friends. But we're also here to proclaim the gospel, the Christian gospel. We really think um, that the Christian gospel is the best hope in the world and that Jesus Christ is the best hope in the world. And so we're here to be light in what we would say um, to a campus um, to that gospel so um, if that is curious to you or strange or foreign to you I'd love to meet and talk and we can um, explore more why we're doing that so if you've been with us the last couple of weeks we've been exploring the book of Leviticus which is an interesting book Uh, it's got a lot of interesting things to say and we're going to press on with that study tonight Um, but the way I want to do it uh, the way I want to get started tonight is to ask a question. Um, it's not a super deep question. It feels deep, but it's not. And I, here's what it is. How do you know, what's one, what are some ways that you know that you're in a relationship with someone that's safe, that's intimate, that's trusting? How do you know when you're in a strong, solid, safe, not dating relationship, just like uh, when, when, your relationship, when, you're in, when your relationship with another person is strong, solid, and safe, what are some ways that you know that? Well, There's a lot of different ways you can know that. Um, But I would contend one of the main ways that you know that a relationship is solid, that it's a strong relationship, is when you eat together. Is when you eat together, right? Now, think about it. Eating eating together is way more than the sum of its parts, right? Like, if you think about what's actually happening, it's pretty boring. It's pretty normal. Like, two organisms, carbon-based organisms, are putting carbon-based nutrients in their lives so that they can live. Like, that's what's actually materially happening. But then, if you think about what's happening, there's so much more happening beyond that. There's so much more underneath the surface, so much more happening when we eat together. When you eat together, when you eat with someone... You're proving that you trust them, that they can trust you. You're proving that there's a relational quality. I mean, think about some of the best times in your life. I bet they've been had around a table. That there are times when you're like, wow, I know this person. I'm connecting with this person in a unique and special way around a table. There's a show on Netflix right now called Cooked. I really highly recommend it because it asks all kinds of great questions. Um, but one of the, one of the episodes 
Um, well, it's a, it's, it's a cooking show, but it's more than a cooking show. It's so good. You need to watch it. Um, but it, it has all kinds of themes about eating together, especially cooking meals together. And it looks at different traditions and cultures and kind of how each different culture thinks about eating and food. And in the first episode, there's this really interesting section on barbecue. And there's, a, uh, there's an old black guy, like this quintessential African-American guy who, who's a really good at barbecue. He's really, really, really good at barbecue. And he has this really interesting part where he says he remembers um, in post-Civil War South, um, there was obviously a lot of segregation among the blacks and the whites. But he remembers when the tobacco harvest would come in, and they had to dry the tobacco very quickly, like in a matter of two or three days, they had to dry it out. And so he remembers they would all be working, blacks, whites, everyone's working together. And even then they wouldn't always get along. But then they would all cook a pig and eat a pig. And he says that was one of the few times he can remember. He says it's one of two times he can remember when he was growing up when there was actually some community. There was some peace between two races when they're sitting together eating a pig together. They would even work separate, but they would eat together. And he says this really interesting line. He says, people are at their best when they realize they are connected. And that's what barbecue does. And I thought, I was like, wow, that's a really profound point, isn't it? Meals do two things. Meals, one, they point to community. And two, they build community. Meals point to community and they build to community. So think about when we go to dinner after RUF at IHOP. Like, there's so much more happening there than just eating pancakes. We're building friendships. We're strengthening relationships. And so there's like a mysterious, transcultural, almost mystical thing that happens when we eat together. So how in the world does this apply to Leviticus, right? How does this apply to Leviticus? Well, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about another kind of offering called a peace offering. And we're going to see how and what it means about eating together. So if you have your handout, look with me at the handout. I'm going to read this text. So this is from Leviticus chapter 7. And this is God's word. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offering that one may make, that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves of bread mixed with oil unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of this, but if the sacrifice of his offering has a vow or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day what remains of it shall be eaten. Let me pray first, real quickly. Father in heaven, thanks, um, thanks for your constancy. When our weeks move, when RUF location moves, when uh, everything seems swirling around us that you are constant and that your word is constant. Father, thank you for the opportunity to sit together and study your word and see how it applies and affects our life. We pray that you would be present with us now, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
Okay, so if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been studying various different offerings, different kinds of sacrifices that the Israelites would offer uh, while they were offered to God. And and we we looked at uh, how these sacrifices are basically ways to deal with sin. That these sacrifices are ways to deal with sin. And we saw that in the burnt offerings two weeks ago, we saw burnt offerings deal with the guilt of sin. Burnt offerings deal with the guilt of sin. Last week, we saw that purification offerings deal with the pollution of sin. They deal with the pollution of sin. And that all of these were ways that God has given his people, the Israelites, 3,500 years ago, a way to deal with sin. Because remember, they had this urgent need to deal with sin because the living God was among them. And if they didn't deal with sin, they were going to be destroyed. And so they said, we have to deal with it. And God says, here are these sacrifices, means to deal with your sin. And so we've seen that ultimately it's God who deals with their sin, right? That it's God who comes and says, first, here are these sacrifices that can atone for your sin that will fix your problems. But, but not just does God do it then, we've seen that God continues to do it now, finally and completely in the work of Jesus Christ, right? And that... The reason why we don't offer animal sacrifices today is because Jesus Christ was the once and for all final, perfect, and complete sacrifice. He dealt with sin once and for all. He is the final atonement for our sin. Now, that's the good news of the gospel, right? That Jesus delivers us from the guilt and the sin and the shame and the pollution of sin through his own blood. And that Leviticus sacrifices, they pointed to and they anticipated and they drive to Jesus Christ and his ultimate sacrifice. So, okay, so there's a couple of different sacrifices we've looked at. That brings us to this sacrifice that we're going to look at tonight. It's called the sacrifice of the peace offering. The peace offering. And now, to understand What this peace offering is, we need to step back a little bit and look at the historical context a little bit more, right? So if you remember, God has saved the Israelite nation from slavery to Egypt. He's brought them out of slavery and he said, I'm going to be your God and you are going to be my people. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago, um, how he enters into a covenant with them. Now, this is really important, and it's a theme that we're going to hit on and talk about a lot over the rest of the semester, that God enters into a covenant with Israel. where He says, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured people. That was in, uh, that's in Exodus 19. He talks about it all across Exodus. I'm entering into a covenant with you, Israel. Now, In the ancient Near East, 3,500 years ago, there were a lot of these kinds of covenants. And they were called, they were called, it was actually, there's a technical term for it. It's called a suzerain vassal covenant. And basically what it is, it's a two-sided promise. It's a two-sided promise. And, And what happens is basically a king or a lord would come to a people and say, I will protect you and I will provide for you if you obey me. And the people would then say, yeah, we will obey you, we will honor you, we will praise you if you protect and if you, and if you provide for us. And so they would enter into this covenant together. And so God comes to Israel and says, you have this idea of a covenant between your kings. 
I'm going to be your king. I'm going to be your God. This is the kind of relationship that we're going to have. And so he enters into this, this, this covenant with them that is basically, it's like, a, it's like a promise, but a really, really strong promise. So a covenant is basically, it's more personal than a legally binding contract, but it's more binding than mere friendship. A covenant, it's more personal than a legal contract, but it's more binding than mere friendship. And so what they're saying here is, you can't get out of this, but you don't want to get out of it either. This is great friendship that's got obligations with it. And so he enters into this covenant with the Israelite people, and here's where, here's where it starts to come full circle. To seal the covenant, to say, we mean business, the two groups would have a meal. They would sit down and they would eat a meal together. And, and basically the meal showed we mean this. We are in earnest. Trust us. We're not going to flake out on this. It, 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 the meals pointed to the trust and to the peace. So, so let's take this back to Leviticus. Here's God entering into covenant with his people. We have a God with Israel where God comes and says, I will protect you. I will provide for you. If you honor and obey me, and the people said, yes, we're all in. You've already rescued us from Egypt. We are all in on this. And let's seal it with a meal. Let's seal it with a meal. That's what's happening with this peace offering. And we'll look at that further along. But I want us to pause and see how far we've come from earlier, a couple of weeks ago till now. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, the number one question Israel was asking was, how do we live? How do we, what do we do to deal with our sin so that this living, holy, perfect God doesn't destroy us and consume us? Now we're at a point where Israel's eating and communing and having a meal with the living God. They're trusting. See, see how, how radical of a transition that is? That God does. See what God does. He takes his enemies. He takes those whom he should destroy. And he comes in and he, he, he says, let's be friends. Let's enjoy a meal together. He takes sinners who deserve wrath and punishment and he saves them and he makes them his friends and he eats with them. And probably the best person to ever do this is Jesus, right? Think of Zacchaeus. What is Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was, we, I mean, tax collectors, everybody's hated tax collectors for as long as history's been around. Just, they were not savory people. And not only that, but tax collectors in Jesus' day were extortioners and oppressive and abusive. They would take way more than they should. They would, and they would just live this opulent, luxurious lifestyle by just taxing as much as they wanted. People hated tax collectors. And they they had good reason for it because they were abusive. And Jesus comes and says, Zacchaeus, person who is not a savory character, I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to call you my friend. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't come, uh, come to Zacchaeus and say, boy, you're in trouble. You wait. I'm going to torture you, you son of a gun. No, he says, let me eat with you. Let me come close. Let's be friends. What's the principle? The principle is this, that God saves his people from their sin and then enters into a relationship of trust and intimacy and even community so that they eat together. And that's what this peace offering was. 
It was this meal. So let's look at it. Let's look at the text here and see what it has to say. So this peace, this peace offering meal is what we're studying tonight. There's a couple of things I want you to notice here. <clears throat> First, notice that in the text we've just read, that sin is not mentioned at all. Sin is not mentioned at all. And that's really significant. Because all of the other sacrifices that we've studied and all of the other sacrifices that we haven't studied, they deal with sin. It's really, really important that this sacrifice deals with sin. But it's not here at all. Sin is not here. That's a major development that we, that we can't ignore. That presumably sin has been dealt with. And now the people are in this, this covenantal relationship with God that they can eat with him. They're in fellowship with him, and that meal points to the fact that there is no guilt, no pollution, intimacy, community, and fellowship with God. That's why it's called a peace offering, a peace meal. Second, notice that this offering is optional. Look at verse 11 and 12. And this is the, sacrif- this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord if he offers it. Then look down at verse 14. And from it he shall offer one loaf and each offering as a gift to the Lord. And then in verse 16 it talks about it as a free will offering. None of this, none of it's required. They don't have to do this. They get to do it. No longer is there guilt in having to offer it, but it's, it's, this is out of gratitude. That, 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 that this is a voluntary, a thanksgiving, a praise, even, even a celebratory offering. Thanking God for his salvation. God, thank you for saving us from, exit, from, from, from Egypt. God, thank you for dealing with our sins so that we can live together. Let's praise God through this offering. Let's celebrate. Let's eat with the living God. The impetus here is not guilt, but gratitude. The impetus to this offering, it's not that we've got to deal with our sin. It's, look what God has done. He's dealt with our sin. Third, notice that all of the parties ate together in this sacrifice. The priests ate, the people who were bringing the offering ate, and in a sense, God consumed or ate part of it. And and you can look later also at chapter 3. These are also offered, these uh, these are also described there. In all of it, though, the people are all All parties are eating together. It's not just God that consumes. The people eat, the priests eat. Everybody, in a sense, sits down almost at a table and eats together. This is almost more, it really is more of a meal than a sacrifice. So I want you to see what's happening here, that God is communing with and eating with mankind, that he is at peace with man. And in his response the, the, the people are responding to God by coming and celebrating this meal with him. So this, this rite is actually more, it, it has more in common with celebration than actual sacrifice. There's less having to deal with sin and more celebrating that sin has been dealt with. And, and that's how the Psalms talk about these sacrifices. These kinds of sacrifices, these peace offerings are all over the Psalms if you read them. But I want to read two quick selections of Psalms. Listen to this, this section from Psalm 26. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and tell of your wondrous deeds. 
He's saying, my hands are innocent. I'm at your altar with a thanksgiving offering. Psalm 54, with a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. God, you have saved me from my enemies. You have saved me from my sin. And I am bringing for you a meal, praising you, thanking you, praising you. That's what's happening here. They're meditating on God's mercy, on his covenantal intimacy with them, and they are freely offering this sacrifice. And if you think about it, that's how we all respond to grace, right? That's how we naturally respond to grace. Remember, grace is a free gift from God. It's undeserved mercy and community and fellowship. We want to praise something that is good and free. If someone comes and gives you something free, you tell people about it. You say, they just gave it to me. Look what they did. They gave it to me. I don't deserve it, and they gave it to me. Aren't they amazing? Sacrifice is always, this sacrifice is out of gratitude, not guilt. So what is a peace offering? The peace offering is a celebration meal of God saving his people and the people praising and rejoicing together. Now, we're not Leviticus Israelites, right? We're not living 3,500 years ago. We're Christians. We live after Jesus. And Jesus changed everything about the Leviticus, the Leviticus system. But here's what's important. The principles, the principles in Leviticus endure. Those continue. Those continue to apply to us today, even if the rituals of this sacrifice may not. The principles of covenantal relationship and fellowship and even meal, those continue today. And so how in the world does this peace offering continue? Well, it continues through the work of Jesus. And, and, And this is amazing. Just before Jesus dies, he's in the upper room with his disciples and it's his last, he, he, he sits down with them. His, one of his last acts is he institutes the Lord's Supper. It's just, it's just amazing what he does. He takes a cup of wine and he says, this cup is the new covenant. There was the old covenant. This is how we did peace offerings. This is the new covenant of my blood. What does he mean? He means that there's a new covenant or a new relationship, a new peace of total peace and total relationship and complete intimacy with God through him. Not through, not through having to come and offer new sacrifices, but through him there is a new covenant. And so, and that, that's what's in the Lord's Supper, friends. The Lord's Supper is the post-Jesus version of the peace offering where we rejoice and celebrate the incredible grace of God towards us. Where we rejoice in how Jesus has finally dealt with our sin. Where we commune with God himself. That's what's happening when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Is It's our version, it's our 21st century version of a peace offering. So now, how does this apply to us? How does this affect us? Well, a, a couple of things, a couple of quick points. One, I think it means that we need to be a celebratory people. We need to be the kind of people who celebrate the peace and the intimacy that we have with the living God. If the Israelites could feast and celebrate 
and enjoy God's presence through the peace offering, how much more do we who have Jesus Christ celebrate and rejoice at fellowship with God? Because they just had... They just had cloudy images of it. We have the complete picture of intimacy and fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Christians, we often, right, do we not get the reputation for being kind of frowny on partying? Like we do. Like if you think about, you don't want to invite a Christian to a party. It's just, they're going to be a wet blanket on the thing, right? And I, I kind of think that's unfortunate. Like you've heard that you've heard I when I was growing up, there was this old line that said, uh, don't drink, smoke or chew or go with girls that do. All right, I get it. But it kind of is like a wet blanket. It's just kind of like a wait a minute. No, we're supposed to be a people who celebrate what God has done for us. We are the people who celebrate God's good gifts. We hear what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying. But in a sense, I think Christians should be the best partiers. Christians should be the best partiers because we have the most to party about. We have the most to be joyful and rejoicing and celebrating about. Fellowship with God, peace with God, and fellowship with each other. Right? We have more reason to rejoice and celebrate than anyone else because we have the eternal message of peace with God dealing with our sins. We should be a people who are marked by celebration, by joy, and by peace. Now, that doesn't mean go get hammered. <laughs> Obviously, right? It doesn't mean participate in debauchery and all that. Leviticus and the rest of Scripture are quite clear on that, that um, all things, including our celebrations, are to be done with purity and holiness. So don't get drunk, don't, get dr- don't do drugs. That's not what I'm saying. You all know that. What you should be hearing me say is we need to be a people who have fun together. We need to be a people who celebrate the peace of God with each other and bringing our friends in and saying, we can have a lot of fun because we have peace with God and with each other. Does that mark your life? It sure doesn't mark mine. I I, I need to work on this. Second, if you're a Christian, you need to be in a church that has the Lord's Supper. You need to be in a church that has the Lord's Supper. Why? Because it is the post-Jesus peace offering. It's, the, it's, the, it's where we come and we remember the covenant that God has entered into with us to deal with our sin. It's the, it's the meal where we come and celebrate intimacy and communion and fellowship with God. So I, I encourage you, find a church where the Lord's Supper happens often. And I, I think... Weekly is best, monthly is great, quarterly at the very minimum. It's important that we receive the grace that God gives us in this peace offering. So um, if you're interested in trying to find a church where that happens, you're in one. (laughs) Right over here on Sundays at 10 o'clock is the church that I go to. A lot of people um, celebrates the Lord's Supper every week. So I really encourage you, come if you're not finding a church regularly um, because Because why would you not? Not out of guilt, but out of gratitude. And third, um, even if we don't offer sacrifices like this today, our lives should reflect God's mercy through praise and free will offerings, right? If this is the kind of thing where the people would come and say, we want to give up our stuff. We want to give up animals and bread out of gratitude for what God has done. 
How much more should that be true of us who have Jesus? Where we give up our resources out of praise and thanksgiving and gratitude to God. When you love something, you praise it and you sacrifice it. And the stronger the love, the stronger and louder the praise. Praise is correlated to love, and with God, love is correlated to salvation. So as you begin to see how God has saved you from your sin, you'll begin to praise Him more because you begin to love Him more. As you see what God has saved you from, you love Him, and as you love Him, you praise Him. Our lives need to be praising God for what He has done to us. What does that look like? It means giving up the things that are valuable. Time, money, emotional resources, friend. It it means giving up the things to sacrifice for God's glory and for the love of your neighbor. And friends, let me say this. You don't have to do it. It's not, I don't want to guilt you into being like, ugh, I got to give up money because Jonathan said so. No, if that's why you're doing it, you're not getting grace yet. When you start understanding what God has done for you, then you begin to say, oh my gosh, yes, take my money. Oh my gosh, take my time, friend, because God loves me. That's what motivates us, is not the guilt, but the gratitude for what God has done in our lives. Paul calls us to this in Romans 12. He calls us to be living sacrifices living sacrifices in response to God's great mercy for you and me. So what do we see in this passage, y'all? We see that God gives his people another form of sacrifice where they can praise God, glorify him, thank him for what they have done, where they can celebrate his closeness and intimacy with him by eating with him. And that we have that same opportunity today. Why would we not participate? Why would we not join in that. May we be a people who are filled with praise and thanksgiving for what God has done in us. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thanks for this time. Thanks that we can look at your word one more time and see how it speaks to us. Lord, we pray that we would be a people who are marked by thanksgiving and praise and sacrifice for your great mercy to us. Father, we pray that that would be true in all of our lives, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.